So hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Beyond the Cover. I am your host, John Robb. Unfortunately, I am not joined here by my awful, wonderful co-host, my awful, wonderful, that doesn't make any sense, my awfully great, wonderful co-host, Jeff Ayers. He is out today, but it's going to be great. We are going to be joined here by best-selling author James Grappando. He's going to be talking about his book, The Big Lie, which is book 16 in his Jack's Tech series. It's hard to believe, already 16 books in. It's amazing how time flies. I want to remind you, of course, that all of our shows are brought to you by Kensington Books. So visit kensingtonbooks.com for more information, along with Suspense Magazine. So always visit suspensemagazine.com for anything and everything that you want to know in mystery, suspense, thriller, horror. So without any further ado, let's just bring Mr. Grippadano on. So James, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Yes. Uh, glad to finally bring you back. I think I had you on... Um, not for the last book, but I think the one before that. It wasn't The Girl in the Glass Box, but I think it was book 14 we talked. And um, it, that time it was book 14. It was like, wow. And now all of a sudden, two years later, here we go with The Big Lies. So give everybody a little bit about what you got going on in this one. So I'm back to the Jack Switek series. So this is my uh, the 16th in the series, as you mentioned, but my 28th novel overall. So I'm, uh, I'm I've been on a string of Jack Switek novels, and so this time there's a little bit of a political bent to the story. Um, I write generally legal thrillers. Uh, I think this still qualifies as a legal thriller, but with the political component to it, it has some it parallels to the current universe. So. You know, people may remember in the 2016 election there was a big debate over whether you could, um, whether the 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 electoral college is still relevant. Should we have just the popular vote? Because three times in this century, uh, the 21st century, the winner of the popular vote has lost the electoral college. And so the big what if question I posed in the big lie is what would happen if one of the electors in a swing state, and I live in a swing state, I live in Florida, um, decided to heck with the popular vote of my state. I'm going to go with the popular vote of the nation and switch my vote. Uh, and could they do that? Um, and so, and what would be the consequences of doing that if an elector simply decided to, to go rogue, so to speak, uh, vote whichever way they want, and so that's Jack's client in The Big Lie, uh, is she swears an oath, like all electors do, to vote in accordance with the vote of their state. Um, in this case, the fictional story takes place in Florida, and Florida is always a swing state in these elections. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's, it's the swing state. <laughs> it, it really is, you know, and, and so, so she decides to go rogue, and of course that brings all hell down on her. You can and you can imagine how uh, people, you know, p politically would react, how the threats would follow, um, how the legal actions would develop. And so, this is the big lie is, you know, exciting inside and outside of the courtroom because Jack has to not only keep his um, elector, his client, safe. Um, legally, but uh, literally <laughs> safe from the onslaught that falls on her when she tries to change the election. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, since something like this has, has never happened before, um, and I think that there's only one, is there one or there might be one or two states, I think, that kind of split their electoral depending on, I think Maine and maybe Nebraska do something different. 
But since no one's ever really done this step before, and maybe we'll see it in our lifetime, so since you're dealing with a fictional subject like that, um, and even though it is kind of a law, it's still kind of a gray area, how difficult was it for you to kind of sit there and say, okay, this is kind of the way I'm going to go, just because if it, it, that's the way it makes more sense for the story, but it might not necessarily be your views. Is that kind of accurate? So what I do with all of my Jack Switek novels is that I try to try to keep them relevant um, in the uh, you know in terms of what's happening in terms of con- contemporary events. But I'd never it's not a ripped from the headlines kind of approach that I have. It's really more about looking for hot issues. And seeing how those issues, you know, in positions might collide, and then um, forecasting um, how it would play out. And the big lie has turned out to be almost prescient, really, because what happened in 2016, and it got very little press, was uh, that um, three electors decided not to, decided to ignore the popular vote of their state. One was, two were in Colorado and wasn't, one was in the state of Washington. And, but they, they were without consequences. They were really just protest votes. What happened in Colorado was the electors refused to vote for Hillary Clinton and instead they voted for John Kasich, um, which is interesting because they just crossed party lines uh, completely. Yeah. Um, and then the other one in Washington, again, someone who refused to vote for Hillary Clinton, um, voted for Colin Powell, who wasn't even running for president. Never ran, yeah. So, right. So, so, like I say, those were just protest votes, and they were kind of interesting. But what happened in those cases is that, like in Colorado and in Washington, like in Florida, is that you are required to swear an oath as an elector. Um, that says you will vote in accordance with however your vote, however your state votes, um, and this has found its way up to the Supreme Court of the United States, and it probably in May or June of this year, the Supreme Court is going to decide if that oath is enforceable um, against these electors. So, so it's really this 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 story has um, a lot of. Uh, it may get some have have some bigger press after its release, depending on which way that goes. Um, and uh, you know, and the whole idea of an oath has been really in the news a lot lately. You know, it's, it's, you have a president who was impeached in part for breaching his oath of office. You have senators who swore an oath to try his impeachment trial fairly and impartially. Um, I, went, I don't know how many of those. Well, you, you can draw your own conclusions as to whether they upheld that oath or not. Um, and uh, and so now we've got the oath of the electors. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's a lot of a lot of legal and political backdrop for the story. But you can see where there's plenty of fodder there for oh, uh, yeah. a thriller. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you definitely whenever you start kind of going political, you you have so many roads that you can just start walking down and especially when you start bringing in you know constitutional things and what i mean that's a whole other kind of gamut so this had to be kind of a harder book to maybe put together just seeing like i said you have so many kind of roads you can go where you know as, as like as like a basic thriller if you just want to say 
you know, the cop and the bad guy. I mean, it's going to kind of converge into one way. But with something like this and so many different things, you could have had 17 different outcomes. So was it hard for you to kind of just, like I said, like kind of focus this kind of into a box? I, I mean, I don't think you're a big outliner and you're kind of more organic. So that had to lend to some challenges. Yeah, yeah you know, and I think what you, what you have to avoid more than anything when writing a thriller like this, this one is that you cannot, especially anything that has to do with politics, okay? You, right. As a thriller writer, you, you can't get into the, as my editor used to call it, the can you top this game, you know, with, and playing, you know, playing that with reality. You can't, in today's world, nothing you can think of in the world of politics can top what is going on in the real world, right? It's just, everything is just sort of upside down. So you really have to write, um, a story that engages your reader and makes you care, makes them care about the characters, um, and uh, that way it has legs. You know, apart from it, and it's not just trying to outdo what's happening in the real world. And you know, readers who've followed the Jack Switek series will appreciate that. You know, it's, it's another chapter in Jack's life. He started in the pardon twenty-three years ago, twenty-five years ago, um, as this you know, 20 something year old ideological lawyer and he's aged in real time. And so, you know, now he's in a different season in his life and facing, you know, um, challenges on a national stage in here. So I think people who follow Jack at all will really enjoy it, but people are new to the series too. You know, I write all of these on the assumption that nobody's ever read any of previous Jack's white tech novels. So they can just sort of, dive in wherever they want in the series is my approach. Yeah. Yeah, because it's kind of like, uh, I mean, you can get some, you know, you get some Switek, you know, the underlying thing, but it's kind of like a law and order where you can kind of jump into any kind of episode you want, and it's about kind of like that episode, and that's kind of what you immerse yourself in at the time. It's kind of a, kind of, kind of a good comparison, since I think, I think Jack and Law and Order started in the same year, believe it or not. 94, <laughs> I think, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Going, going, going way, way back, yes. So, and that's kind of how I got into the writing thing, was there were shows like Law and Order, and um, it was on the heels of L.A. Law, which had just finished, and, yeah, you know, and Grisham, was just getting, Grisham was just getting traction, and that's kind of when either either arrogantly or naively, I decided I could do that, and I've been doing it ever since. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about Charlotte Holmes. Um, why was she the perfect person to kind of, I guess, be that 1B uh, main character in this book? Yeah, so so I wanted it. First of all, um, it, you know, she was um, – so she's a young woman – who is politically connected and she serves as a lobbyist um, in um, Florida. And I've found that um, Florida, Florida's gun lobby is really very, very strong. Um, and there's a, there, is a, there are a couple in that field who are legendary, really, in the work that they have done and the influence that they have had. And so, so I'd always been sort of fascinated with um, – their work in Tallahassee, uh, and oftentimes people don't even know who these who these electors are. Right? We have these 29 electoral college members. Well, who are they? Well, they're, they're usually 
uh, people like a lobbyist or sometimes it's the chairman of the state political party, whichever, whether, um, whichever, whether it's a Democrat or the Republican national or uh, state party, they're, they're very well connected. So I wanted it to be Charlotte. I wanted to be someone that was a shock. That when, and when she announced that she was switching, um, so that was sort of the device in that. Is that you know Charlotte is a gun lobbyist, a registered Republican, and suddenly announces that she's going the other way, um, which raises all kind of questions of her own motivations. You know, I didn't I, I didn't want this to be a polemic or a crusade at all. I wanted people to sort of get in the mind of and wonder about. Are are the motives of this person who is changing her vote and changing the election all that pure? You know, she comes across as publicly as announcing that she's voting her conscience, but is she? You know, does she have some other kind of agenda? And is Jack getting hoodwinked by that? I think uh, is a part of the compelling story. Is how much can he trust his own client? Um, mm-hmm. So so that relationship works. Um, works well on that on that level and you know and i think there's a a good she also provided a grant i'm not going to give away the twist at the end but she, she was really a, a a a well positioned to deliver on the twist i always try to get a twist in at the end of it you know it's, it's sure, one yeah. thing to keep people one thing to keep people turning the pages but you always want them to have that aha moment and, mm-hmm. at the end also and you know oh, i should have seen that coming and you know it's that's kind of fun yeah, I mean, that's a great, I mean, you always need to have that kind of, at the end, like, oh, yeah, I didn't see that kind of coming, and, you know, wasn't really sure that that was coming. Oh, yeah, you know, that's the way I always kind of feel with those kind of books. You're, and you always kind of wait for it, and if it's not there, you're almost kind of like a little disappointed, <laughs> I guess. Right, right. But you have to, it's one thing, my, you know, I had an editor for 23 years, Carolyn Marino, who I, um, has since moved on, she's decided to, you know, to, to downscale a little bit. So um, the big lie, interesting, this is an interesting little fact about this book, it just occurred to me again. She edited the first half of the book, and my new editor <laughs> edited the second half of the book. So, uh, uh, but Carolyn would always have this rule, it's like, okay, it's not just about the aha moment, it's like, the, you can't cheat the reader. The reader should right. have it. The, the aha moment should come with the, oh God, you know, how did I miss that? You know, now mm-hmm. I see. You have to be fair to them, you know. And and, and you, some people will get it, you know. They'll they'll guess, you know. But if you can, you know, if you can kind of catch people, ninety nine percent of the readers, then I consider that a success. Yeah. Now the one thing when you're kind of writing legal thrillers. A lot of the time, you know, the the lawyer really, like Jack, really doesn't know the client, so he's not really sure how far to trust, how much to trust, and you know. So when you're building that dynamic between like him and Charlotte, you know, how do you kind of make sure you keep that tension kind of together? Because he still has to, you know, he doesn't know who she is really. He doesn't really know right. what kind of person she is. So how are you kind of keeping that tension? Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, well, like I say, you know, that was, uh, and that's evolved over time because, you, you know, Jack, um, as I mentioned, you know, in the first novel in the series, Jack was mm-hmm. just a newbie, you know, but he's, you know, Jack has now been around the block, right? right? You know, he's, he's in his late 40s, mid 40s, late 40s. Uh, he's defended death row inmates. He's defended 
uh, people accused of terrorism. He's, you know, he's, he's, uh, so he's, he's, uh, uh, he doesn't go into any case anymore uh, with, you know, pie in the sky ideals or, uh, you know, accepting, you know, uh, hook, line and sinker, everything that his client says is fact. Um, I've not made him um, jaded. I wouldn't say that, you know, and uh, because a lot of the fictional characters in the legal thriller genre, I would say that I've read are jaded, you know, and, um, you know, and I think cynicism has a role, but Jack is not a cynic, you know, Jack still believes that, you know, it's like the, it's like the the great line from um, Tom Hanks in Philadelphia, the movie uh, that was in with, Denzel Washington. It says, like, you know, mm-hmm. it's like the great thing about this being a lawyer, you know, is that every now and then, once in a while, you get the sense that justice is being done, right? And I think Jack sort of lives for that moment, too. So, um, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean that um, there's going to be a happy ending, but uh, it does mean that your work has some meaning and Jack is looking for meaning. Right. Now, when you don't write a Jack's white tech book, cause like you said, this is your 28th novel. This is the 16 in the series. So you got 12 others that are out there. I mean, you had Andy Henning um, series, but then you have some, you know, you have some standalones like a cash landing that you got and um, a King's ransom. So when, when you're getting out of Jack's White Tech and you're writing something else, is that just because you're trying to like cleanse your palate? Is it a story you kind of want to go with that doesn't really fit in with White Tech? Is it just a character? What, what? Why do you kind of like to jump out of it and just not do straight series all the time? Usually, it has to do with the the fact that um, it just doesn't fit for Jack. You know, when I come up with an idea, I think real early on, I ask the question. You know, is there a place for Jack in this story? And is and should this story be told? You know, mostly from his point of view. Um, and and if, I don't want to force it. You know, and if it's if it's not there, and I still feel you know I'm in love with the story, um, then that's usually how the standalone comes comes about, right? You know, is that uh, you know I right. just sort of you know I hate stories where it's like you know this character you've been think you've known for like you know 10 or 12 years and then finally you know it's it's like you know uh, you get somewhere into the story and it's like oh well you didn't know this but jack actually you know went to medical school for three years you know and <laughs> and uh, was studying to become a brain surgeon so he can handle this crisis you know i've just i just hate that contrived kind of thing where it's there where a lawyer has no business uh being in the the uh in the predicament that you've created in the plot and worse than that he somehow knows exactly how to get out of it because of something you've 10 years into the series made up about his past uh, i just so i don't do that you know i keep jack true as a character to who he is and and don't don't you know manipulate him to fit the plot, but if the plot fits him, it's going to be a Switek. If it doesn't fit him, it'll be a standalone. Gotcha. Now, I mean, and now 28 books. I mean, just to say it, you kind of have to pinch yourself, right? Because, I mean, you're already working on 29. I'm sure it's probably already done, and 30 is probably, <laughs> probably in the conceptual stage. And I mean, 
did you think it was going to go I this long? I that far along. I, I, I am, I am uh, writing. Um, actually, the next one is another Jack Swiatek novel, so it worked for him. But I also wrote a play last year, so I had a busy Whoa. year. Uh, yeah, it was my first dramatic play, and that was a learning experience. So, um, so I'm not quite as far as ahead on the novel writing as I'd like to be, but at least I crossed, you know, playwright off my bucket list. So. Yeah, what was the play about? So the play was um, the story of um, most people think that if you've read this Anne Frank, it's a kind of a dark play. I mean, in mm-hmm. terms of subject matter, but most if you've read a- Anne Frank, you, you know, most people think it was neighbor informing on neighbor was how the Nazis identified who was Jewish and who wasn't, and um, there is a kind of a dark piece of history about. Uh, the Nazis' use of IBM technology, um, pre-computer technology, mm-hmm. to process census data, which allowed them to um, identify who was who was Jewish. And so the play is about um, the Tom. It's called Watson, and it, the play is about Watson Senior, um, the first Tom Watson to lead IBM. His son led it into the computer age, and their relationship and um, what you know? What what IBM knew and didn't know about the Nazis' use of their product. Um, so it got great, mm. you know, great feedback, great interest from people. Most people are like, "Oh, I never knew about that." And uh, no, I do. So, so yeah. So hopefully, it'll have a life outside of South Florida. That's interesting. I had no idea that that even went on. But there's a lot of those things, I think, because, of course, there was no social media back in the 19, late 1930s and 40s, and so right. uh, secrets right. could be a little bit easier to keep. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. You're not keeping any yeah. secrets now. Now, do you do a lot of um, events? Do you go out and, you know, are you uh, at a lot of events where people can see you? So, you know, I do a lot of I, – I do a fair amount of festivals. I also do – there's a great bookstore here in – Coral Gables, um, where I live in South Florida, uh, called Books and Books. And that has been, for all 28 of my novels, that has been stop number one um, on any tour that I do. Um, But unfortunately, a lot of the bookstores that I used to go to, especially the independents, are no longer in existence. Um, So that's just a fact of life. But but Books and Books is still here, so I will will be there launching... uh, um, the Big Lie, and um, and then I have a, f- a couple of festivals lined up, one in Orlando, uh, and I forgot the other one. But I don't do as to answer your question. I don't do as many um, as I used to. Uh, I used local. to go. I mean, my yeah, when my first novel came out, um, I think I did like you know seventeen cities in twenty days or something like that. Um, and that 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 world has changed so much more uh is well you you know mentioned this there wasn't that, you mentioned not that much social media in the 1940s well there wasn't that much social media in the 1990s and early 2000s either. that's true so, too um so uh so we, you know we um so much more of uh, an author's connection to his readers is done through um online social media now, um, unless, you know, for better or for worse, you know, and so I guess I get to meet more people, if you call that meeting. Um, sure. But, uh, you know, that's, that's, 
that's sort of the way of the world. And your website, is that the best place for everyone to find out about you, just jamesgrapondo.com? That's it. That is it, yeah. No. Yeah. No. And, you know, I am on Facebook a lot, so you know, can look at... So that's your social on. media platform, is the Facebook? Yeah. Some people do the Twitter yeah. and Instagram, yeah. and so... Yeah, yeah, I can't do all three. I'm, I, I I picked one, and you know that's um, you know I'm, and and it, it, it's nice. I like to hear fan from fans that way. Yeah, yeah. I, there's no way I can do. I I do some stuff on Facebook and Twitter, and that's it. I'm like, I yeah. otherwise you just get caught up into this black hole, and you just never get out. Oh, you're right. You're yeah, right. it's yeah. like it's like YouTube. If you start watching a cat video, you're going to watch fifty, and then you're going to realize you just wasted four hours. Well, man, I'll tell you, it's great to be able to catch up with you and talk with you here about the latest book, The Big Lie. Again, book 16 in the Jack Switek series comes out on the 25th of uh, February in all the formats that people want to buy it at. So congratulations, James, man. It is always a pleasure. And uh, again, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Hope to talk again soon. All right, man. You have a good one. Great. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.